What's going on, everyone? Welcome into the Final Whistle Sports Podcast. This is a special episode, and I'm, as always, I'm your host, Blaine Spencer. Uh, I want to apologize firsthand for being a little hiatus the past week and a half. I was actually out sick, so unfortunately, there were no podcasts last week, but I am back. I'm feeling great, and I've got an honored guest here today. I have Adrian Durant, former Olympian as a sprinter, as well as the head coach of Cornell Track and Field, as well as the Olympic head coach of the U.S. Virgin Islands. And as a former track athlete myself, I'm kind of geeking at the moment about having this interview. Adrian, how are you? Hope everything's well. Yep, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Blaine. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So let's jump right in. I might be asking you a couple of track questions, uh, primarily just because I'm going to probably have some hurdle advice to ask. But let's start (laughs) off with how you grew up in St. Croix. Was sports always a passion of yours? And then was track always like the end goal that you kind of really got dug into? Um, well, I was one of those kids who just had a ton of energy. Like I, I you know, I, w- I would run around, bounce, bounce around. And um, I was being raised by my grandmother and my mother. Um, uh, and it was a lot for them to handle, <laughs> you know, and I think these days they talk about medicating kids like who <laughs> are like how I was because it was just I talked a lot, asked a lot of questions. And so it was like they always tried to put me in activities. But, um, at, you know, I was too young. So it was like, OK, as soon as I hit like three years old, it was like, OK, what can he possibly do? So they put me in martial arts. It was like when I was three or four. And uh, that kind of calmed me down, taught me to med- meditate, taught me to kind of um focus my mind on doing things. And it gave me something to rehearse and practice and put my attention into. And then once I got, you know, a little older, um, they started finding more and more things I could get into. My family is a big artsy family. So uh, they tried to get me to do dance and things like that. My mother danced and grandmother and everyone danced. Um, I hated it. I I wasn't a fan of it. I hated going to the shows and they were boring and I I just wasn't into it. Um, And so once I got to uh, second grade, it was like, okay, he can run track. And it was like, perfect. You know, it was the perfect thing for me. Um, I would come home dead tired, (laughs) which was the goal. Um, And at some point, you know, and I think this is the case with any young kid. And this is why I think it's good for kids to find things that they're good, that they can gain competency in. Because I started training and working hard and I started racing people and beating them. I was like, oh, man, I'm, I'm fast. And so I just continued that pattern. I was racing, beating people, training, and we would do the interscholastic stuff down in, in St. Croix. And I would get to race against kids from other schools. And I think it was like I won my first ribbon. I got like third place overall. And it was like, I can win stuff. <laughs> so then it was about, oh, man. Like, so then it was like I can win medals and ribbons. And it was exciting. And then uh, my coach, uh, Charles Golfin, he would take us, he took us to a track meet in, um, I think it was in Grenada or one of these other countries, you know, because I was on St. Croix and mm-hmm. it's not hard to get to some of the other islands. And so I believe it was Grenada or maybe even the British Virgin Islands, Tortola. And it was like, wow, I get on, I get on a plane and I get to travel to a whole nother island and race people and see their country and see their funny looking money and eat their food. And so I was automatically kind of hooked on it at that point. That's when it was like, okay, um, I want to see where this can take me. Where can I go? I saw the Olympics on TV and it was like, I want to be in the Olympics. So that's kind of how it went down for me. 
And as you continue to race, you got your first real crack at it in the World Junior Championships. Can you just walk us through that experience? Like uh, how, how nerve-wracking <laughs> was it? It was in Jamaica. So what what was going through your mind? Uh, oh, man, you really did your research. That was terrible. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, man, I want to lead up into that because so I was I was running in high school in New Jersey. Yeah. And I, it was my senior year and I had started just running fast enough. I ran 48.6 and I needed to run 47 to be recruited by South Carolina. And I wanted to go to South Carolina because they were mm-hmm. really good, University yeah. of South Carolina. And um, I got hurt my last 400 of the year. Like I pulled up and ran like a minute, a minute and nine. Like it was terrible. It was at the state championship meet. And it was- Been there, was, done that one. And so it, it was like, I lost hope and- um, I didn't know. I was like, man, I have the grades to go to college. I was in all AP, all honors, but no money. And so I didn't really know what I would do. And we decided to, uh, you know, take out some loans and, and, and whatnot, whatnot, just enough money to, to for one year to go mm-hmm. to college. So then it was like, okay, I'm going to keep running track. I'm going to keep pursuing my Olympic dream. I'm going to go get to South Carolina for a year. And so the summer leading up to going to South Carolina was that summer. Um, the plan was to compete at the CAC juniors in Barbados and then to go with everyone from there everyone would go as a contingent all the people from all the islands would go together to Jamaica to compete in the world junior championship and other people from the other countries would meet up there and so the CAC the Central Caribbean Central and Caribbean region uh, Central American and Caribbean region and so uh, I uh, we went down so the plan was to go to Barbados but for some reason I kept we missed our flight in Philadelphia and the second day Golfing and I, we were supposed to catch the flight. So we missed the first day. The second day, my cell phone was left in the cab. And so we missed the flight again. So it started getting a little ridiculous, but we were stuck in Philly for a couple of days. And on the third day, we finally got made it to Barbados, but I had missed the meet. But I was there in time for the training camp. And so okay. um, was in Barbados. And this is where I first met, you know, I don't know if you ever heard Charandy Martina. Mm-hmm. You know, this is where I first met because he was running for... Um, curacao at the time instead of the in the netherlands you run for curacao and i met him and we were roommates and that's where i met daryl brown from um trinidad and just all these all the top junior athletes at the time um and we all kind of trained together prepared and we went from there to jamaica and so jamaica that was interesting um i mean the world junior championship in jamaica first of all jamaica is crazy about track and field like they take it seriously so the world juniors there it was packed it was just like it was loud and everyone was there everyone and so <laughs> i i you know i had been around all these guys Daryl brown and i got to know them and it was you know i was like all right you know i can race with these guys mm. and it came to the day of my <laughs> to run the hundred and I was excited because I knew the coaches from South Carolina were there and everyone was there. And I said, all right, I finally get to show what I can do for real. hundred meters. I know I can run something. I'm ready to go. And it was like, okay, get in the blocks, runners to your mark, get set. And then it was like a sound, like a, like a, it sound, it was like this weird, like sound. And apparently that was the gun. They had they had changed the sound that they make at the start, so it wasn't like a gun sound. It was like yeah. a, almost like that, and it was the first time I had ever heard it. 
and I hadn't come to the practice rounds where you can hear what the gun sounds like. Uh, okay. So it was just the sound going through the microphone and I didn't react and everyone left. Oh, and then once no. I saw them leap, I took off and it was so embarrassing. I ran oh, like 11, man. I ran something like 11 something in a hundred and everyone's like, oh, this guy is terrible. You know, oh gosh. Oh, super no. embarrassing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was my world junior experience. Uh, completely so embarrassed. Did, did you ever find out why they ended up switching it? No, it, it's just I hadn't been to a meet of that level. And so if you're at meets, the starting pistol sound can be different depending on how they have the audio system set up. Yeah. You know, it can sound like a pistol. It can sound like a clap. And they had switched to this sound that was more like that shushing sound. It, it didn't sound like a gun. And yeah. I had never heard it before. So I know you're supposed to react when you hear a sound, but I was still green. And so... I heard that sound and it didn't sound like a gun to me. And I just stayed in the blocks and yeah. everyone else took off. And I just got, I sm got smoked around 11. I don't know what the time I ran was. I don't, you probably can see it there. It was terrible. Oh man, that's brutal. <laughs> that was world juniors for me. <laughs> I kind of made up for it the next year though. Yeah. And then, so you decided to go to South Carolina. You said you, you talked walked about on. it a little bit. You took out the loans, you walked on. Yep. Did you yep, use that as an extra chip on your shoulder to put in extra work, extra time at the track yeah. to really get yourself going? Yeah, because we were broke. So it was like, I remember one time we got in trouble because a bunch of us missed practice during my freshman year, you know. And I remember Coach Brown pulling me into his office and saying, hey, look, you're not going to be here next year if you don't earn yourself a scholarship. You don't have any money. And I thought about it. I was like, man, he's right. If I don't find a way to earn a scholarship, I'm going to be uh, out of school and that'll be the end of that. No school, no degree, no Olympics. Right. So I, um, my freshman year when I walked on, you know, it was intimidating because South Carolina's women had won the national championship and the men were like, you know, today we're a top program. The men won the four by four. So they had, you know, that Otakile Lakote, who was a 144 guy in the eight, Otis Harris, you know, ended up being a silver medalist in 04 and 400. I mean, they were just stacked. And um, Jonathan Fortenberry, he split like what 44-1 as a freshman <laughs> when they won the four by four at nationals. Um, so it was just it was a stacked team. And um, anytime I when I walked on, it was intimidating. But I never thought anyone was better than me. I figured if I trained in the same environment as them, I could be just as good. And so, but I'll tell you this: anytime I had the opportunity to decide who I got to train with. You know, whether it was this group of guys who were kind of going through the motions or this group of guys, Otis and John, who were battling each other every day, I would go train with Otis and John, Otis, Otis Harris and Jonathan Fortenberry. Mm -hmm. And these guys would blow me away every day. But eventually that gap got smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And to the point where by the end of my, you know, by... The indoor season, I was good enough for them to take me to the SEC championship and to actually compete. Um, but by the outdoor season, you know, I had run like 21 flat early on, like one of my first 200s. It was like, whoa, like it was just like I had all of a sudden got really fast. It was like, you know, I opened up 21 flat and was like, OK, I might be good, you know. And then I started I was able to um, compete for the Virgin Islands that year in the um, Carifta Games, which was in Trinidad. And that was interesting because that's when I went head to head with Bolt in the 200. And so it was like, you know, my freshman year just got better and better to where by the time we got to the outdoor SEC championship, 
um, you know, I was good enough to where Coach Fry decided to let me lead off the defending yeah. four by four. And, you know, I was scared, but we went out there and ran and we won it. And I ran 10 three in the hundred at the last chance meet. And, and by the end of that year, I had ran 20.83 and 1037. And I was on full scholarship <laughs> the next year. For, and for you, did you mo- running with them? I know you said you had it was you trying to close that gap day in and yeah. day out. Yep. What was the what was your regiment to try and get yourself to to close that gap? Was it just training with them day in, day out? Was it or was it trying to do extra things on the side, too? No, I didn't do extra things. I just chose you know, steel sharper steel. And I, I went over to the two best guys and trained with them every day. And not everybody wanted to do that because those guys, were they were beasts, you know. I mean, I remember early on my freshman year, and this is when the coaches first realized that I had some potential, like real potential. We were doing a workout and it was maybe, you know, we were running multiple 300s, four 300s. And it was by the fourth or fifth or maybe five of them, by the fifth one. And we were taking turns leading. And so on the bunny rabbit method, the bunny rabbit. Go chase I'm a freshman walk on. Exactly. I'm a freshman walk on. And these guys are juniors and sophomores and seniors. And when it gets to my turn, they're like, hey, look, man, we're tired. Don't run. Don't run too hard. And so I took off and ran 34 and left everyone in the dust. And the coaches were like, whoa, this sucker could run. Because I first of all, that was insane to me mm-hmm. that not to run too hard because yeah, I'm trying to earn some money. I'm trying to take your money. <laughs> so, you know, so I had a, I had a goal because I knew I wouldn't be there if I didn't earn the scholarship. So it was like I had no choice. Yeah. And then you end up getting the call by the Virgin Islands. You represent them in Athens. Can you just yes. walk us through that? Like what was so, the, how did that transpire? Like just walk us through it. So I had already been representing the Virgin Islands at, you know, World Juniors. And then by that point, the Carifta Games, the Pan Am Juniors. So I had already kind of gotten in the groove of representing the Virgin Islands internationally. And then, uh, you know, when 2004, came, when it came around and I was in a position that I could represent the VI, it was like that thing that I had been talking about since I was 10 years old. Finally, you know, it finally happened. It was like, I'm going to go to the Olympics. And the funny thing about it is, although that was my goal, like forever, I don't think I appreciated it as much as I should have my first time going because uh, I was still young. I was a sophomore in college and it it happened. That's pretty early. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I just like I didn't walk in the opening ceremony because I wanted to be fresh to compete not realizing, you know, the type of honor that was and how people were looking forward to seeing me out there walk. And it wasn't until I got to go back in 2016 that I, it was like, I really took it all in the opening ceremony, closing ceremony and realized just, and it took till 2016 because I missed 2008 and I missed 2012. And I thought I would be at those for sure. And I, I didn't make them. And so it was like, wow, you know, my first time there, I guess I assumed that I always be, would be back and do better get into the Olympics, <laughs> you get there once, you're not guaranteed to get there again. And so my first experience there, um, I think I should have taken it, taken more in. Um, but it still was amazing. I mean, it still was amazing um, being in Athens, the home of the Olympics, you know, and getting to see like the Colosseums and just the original kind of the original places that things, things happened. It was amazing. 
Um, got to go all around Athens and even check out the, the, the islands around Athens. So um, amazing experience being in a stadium. Um, and of course, I was there when Justin Gatlin was running 100 and, and uh, Sean Crawford. And for me, it was amazing because uh, the Olympic Village is really cool. You know, you're in this big area yeah. with all the countries, all the athletes, and you're in a dining hall and you're seeing everybody. So you're sitting there and, you know, I, I saw Yao Ming and I'm like, this guy is really tall. You know, he's like, and you're just seeing the best athletes on the planet, just kind of eating and hanging out. And, and so you, you'll never be in that type of situation. Um, I, it's hard to describe, but it, it was amazing. Definitely. Uh, yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. And for you, you kind of mentioned it a little bit at 2016, you took, you embraced it a little bit more. How did it differentiate yeah. for you being there as a coach instead of an athlete? Uh, well, it's funny because you still feel pressure. Uh, you know, as a, you feel like as an athlete, the athlete has all the pressure, but now the coach, you feel the same exact pressure. And so you're, you're, uh, you know, just as much as the athletes that you're coaching are trying to do their best, you're doing everything you can to facilitate that. And that last week is important because people blow it that last week, you know, when you're running in the Olympics and you're racing and you're there for 20 days, and you're racing, you know, at one this specific day, you can do a lot to mess things up going into that. So it's just us being really cautious, being meticulous about our plan and following it. And um, so it's it's tough. And I didn't realize how much it was a burden until and I coached Bruno Hortelano from Spain, fastest mm-hmm. man in Spain. And when he crossed the line in the semifinals of the 200 and he had just missed out, he got 10th overall. But when he was done, it was like, man, yeah. it was like a, like I was, I didn't realize how wound up I was. So you definitely feel the same pressure. Um, but you have more freedom as a coach. I can, you know, I can tour a little more and see it and see places a little more, you know, I don't have to stick to a, a, a uh, you know, a certain diet or anything. I can eat everything all around Brazil, Rio. And uh, so, it, so that part, I, I've always loved the part of um, track, you know, traveling and experiencing different cultures. That was a big part of the lore of track for me that you got to do that a lot. Yeah. And that transitions perfectly into a couple of fan questions that we have. Yeah. What was the best place you were able to visit? Man, that's tough. I don't, that's a tough one. I've been to maybe 40, 40 countries and, and of course the Caribbean islands individually our countries right. mm-hmm. um and i've had great experiences in a lot of them i've you know where was i in el salvador where i got to see like the, the volcanic crater um okay. and like people are like living there it's like a forest now um i've been to bangkok and you know you, you see people like feeding elephants and you're like wow this is just so different from where i'm from um it's you know i went to uh paris for the world championship and got to see the eiffel tower and so it's it's hard for me to pick a favorite because every place that I've gone to has been something amazing that I've experienced or it's changed my perception of that place. Like before I went to Berlin, I didn't know what to expect in Berlin. You know, I'm like, I don't know how they're going to be. And then I went there. I was like, oh, this is a great place with great people. You know, I enjoyed my time there. So it's really hard to pick one. Yeah. Um, if I if you really have to force me to pick one, let me think. Let me think. Let me think. Hmm. This is a fan asking. This ain't me this time. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm trying to... <laughs> Favorite plate. Oh man. 
I, I'm gonna have to narrow it down to the Caribbean because I'm from I'm an island boy. Yeah. I love the beach. Um, oh, people are gonna get mad at me. I had a, I, I enjoy Trinidad. Okay, I enjoy Trinidad. Great food, great people. I stayed out with um, some friends out on the on the countryside, and it was just really get to experience community. It was I enjoyed it. So I would say Trinidad is in my top. Three. All right. All right. Was it was it sometimes <laughs> culturally overwhelming when you're going to all these different countries and cities? Overwhelming? No, I think people were great. If anything, overwhelming in a sense that people looked at us like we were stars. Like, really? you know, we, we, yeah, when you go to the World Championships, Olympics, it doesn't matter if you're the slowest person in the world. If you have a credential saying that you're an athlete, they want you to sign anything, their forehead, whatever. They want your pin. They want a picture. They want... And it's just like, wow, like they really are into this. Like mm-hmm. they really appreciate it. They it's, it, it's, it's an experience because you don't get that in the U S you know, yeah. you know, if you, maybe if you're number one in the world, but you don't really see that type of fan service. So it was um, that fanfare. So it was, it was, um, it was different, but I wouldn't say overwhelmed. I try to take in as much of the other cultures as I can. I'm actually pretty adventurous when I travel to most places, they'll be like, you know, we're in Guadalajara for the, um, which meet was that? It was maybe the CACs or one or Pan Am. No, CACs, I believe. And uh, they're like, hey, it's kind of dangerous going around. And we're like, okay. And, you know, <laughs> we're like exploring. We found restaurants where like amazing food. And it's, I always like meeting the real people. You know, I hate being in the touristy places. I want to go meet the real people and see what they're, you know, just, ex- just talk to them and eat their food and kind of spend some time with them. And, and it's always been fulfilling. So I like, trying to get to the real places that's awesome uh i'm gonna switch some gears now because now i want to focus to how what led you for your transition to coaching what got you into that was it always a part of the game plan after running no i wouldn't say it was a part of the game plan i had an it degree i was really good at computers and coding and i could build computers and all that stuff and i thought that that's what i wanted to do um and then I realized it was, I hated it. I hated sitting, you know, in a, behind a desk all day long, just when I didn't enjoy it. I enjoyed being outside. I enjoyed track. I enjoyed traveling and all those different things. And I, I did notice when I was in college, um, our head coach, I was like, man, he's driving a really nice car and he gets <laughs> to travel, you know, he gets to travel all over the world. He's at the Olympics. He's looking fly. I'm like, that job looks pretty appealing to me. It's track coaching. So um, yeah, I think it, that was in the back of my head. And once I got into my IT work, I was working at the University of the Virgin Islands and I was working at other places. I was working at Cannon in Virginia. And I was like, I hate, I hate this. And so I, I, I had gotten back into running and then I was trying to figure out a path into uh, college coaching. And what I did was I coached a year of high school at Lake Taylor High School in Virginia. Um, I was doing that while working at Home Depot while still trying to run. Um, so it was, it was a struggle. Um, and then I uh, went and traveled across the country to volunteer at the University of Illinois um, under Coach Wayne Angel. But when he left there, I had to leave as well because I was working under him. And so that was a bust and a very expensive bus traveling across the country with no job, finding a place to stay just to be, have the opportunity to volunteer at such a great mm-hmm. program and work with some good kids just to lose that opportunity. Um, but as I always say, failure is a part of the journey and you have to still take the risks anyway. And so after that, I had to leave uh, 
Illinois and I was in a bad place because I was broke and I wasn't running fast. And it was like, um, and eventually I got myself kind of together and I moved uh, back to the Virgin Islands to kind of get grounded. Found a job. I found work at a local gym. I said, hey, I'm an Olympian. You know, let me do this. And I started taking, you know, when I do stuff, I go kind of hard. So I took over. I had like all the clients, everyone, all the trainers hated me I started teaching all the fitness classes you know I'm like hey you know let's go I'm doing all the all that stuff and I eventually started working with the local tv station training their their folks and I went into a contract with them saved up money and then I moved to Tallahassee Florida on my own to volunteer coach so I saved up money so that I can go try this again Mm -hmm. um and I was sleeping on someone's floor for about a year while I was coaching that first year and I, uh, you know, my, I had some conference champions. I coasted jumps and I did well at it. I had some conference champions, the top jumps group in the conference, uh, all American. And I was like, all right, that was my first year as a volunteer. And I, you know, I showed my stuff. The next year I, I coached another all American jumper and some more conference champions and, and runner ups and whatnot. And was like, okay, he's doing a good job. And that's when I saw the Cornell opportunity and I applied for it, I got that job and got you know came to Cornell as an assistant and so it kind of went from there um but to answer your original question no it wasn't something that I always knew I was going to do it was just something that was in the back of my head and I realized it was what I was meant to do in the first place and I happened to be you know able to you know I know the sport and I'm able to communicate it and teach it um in a way that others can kind of absorb it and because that's all you know there are a lot of talented people who can run fast but can't really explain to yeah. someone how to do those things so it just happened to be something that I you know I was good at and it's been working out <laughs> yeah and how difficult is it to train so many different individuals because some of them have very different regiments in comparison to how they absorb information how they use the utilize their techniques mm-hmm. how, for you how do you try and uh, gauge all of that when you have a, a large group you have to have some amount of general stuff right like so you know, it's going to be a, a rubric. Um, you know, everyone's going to have to get in shape and, you know, we're going to have to work on the specifics of your race, whether you're a long sprinter or short sprinter and um, going to have to get you fast and strong and explosive. Now there are things that everyone can do to work towards those. You know, everyone can, I can give something that will get everyone generally in shape. And then you see, okay, what, are everyone's varying levels of fitness, which are typically based on your training age, you know, um, your biological age, all these different things. And so we could do, you know, I could give this amount of work for three weeks and then do a test and see where everyone's levels are. And I know where you would need to be baseline to perform at a certain level in a certain event. So you're a 400 runner. I know that you need to be able to run this and let's say we're doing a 500 test. You have to be here. And so really it's, the general training and then seeing where everyone is and then saying, okay, this person, I need to increase their volume. This person, I need to decrease their volume. This person needs to spend more time, um, needs more specific, a, a more specific lifting program for them. You know, these lifts don't work for them or this person needs more hypertrophy. They need to put on more mass. They're, they're a little underdeveloped or this person is too big, gains weight very quickly and needs to lift less. So you start noticing that as you're developing a relationship with them. Um, and working with them individually, but it's going to be a combination of both. It's the general training, and you just have to kind of pay attention. I wouldn't say it's hard. It's just part of the game. It's coaching, you know? Yeah, and then especially 
for college track, it's a little bit different because you 95% of the time it's individual base, but then you're correlating points for your team. And then you'll have the team races as well. How do you try and uh, juggle that even for like when you were an athlete and now how you've been as a coach, how do you mm-hmm. try to get that team mindset always through in day in and day out? Well, that's established by your team culture. So that's going to really be the, the, you know, the structure that you have put in place as a coach, as a staff, you know, that you've passed down to, you know, the kind of kids that you recruit, you know, pass down to the captains, the, 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 your principles, you know, the things that you stand for. Um, it's kind of getting that stuff set in stone. Uh, and it's hard establishing a team culture, but I think it does matter um, when it comes to that. So I've been, you know, you could be on a team where it's all individual and you have all superstars and they all are, are selfish and care about themselves. And that can work in some places, but in the Ivy league where I'm at, mm-hmm. it's a team league. You win with the team. And I've seen folks overperform because they're competing for the team. I've seen amazing things happen because the people are carrying the weight of a team. That's how we scored 211 points when we won it uh, in 2016. Yeah. It's, and you broke the record. Thing. Yeah. So we, we focus on that team energy, you know, how you're supporting your teammate. And we foster that throughout the year in, act, in things that we do, meetings that we have, activities that we do, even how we room at the hotels, how we have dinners and breakfast. Like, you know, any activities that we do, it's all with the goal of building this team culture. Someone's playing some music or something. <laughs> it's, been, it's weird. It's with the goal of um, reinforcing this team culture. And so it's not something that happens by itself. I think you could very easily end up with a team of individuals and it could be good because folks could be really talented, but I don't think you lead, you can get long-term success like that. Um, I think to have a successful team over, you know, a span of time, you need to build into your culture that uh, the goal is to support each other. You know, we're running for each other. We're diving across the line for each other. I carry my weight. I get my points. You get your points. We win together. Did it help for you, to, for you to make that transition from assistant to head coach already having that culture kind of set in place in stone already a little bit? Well, two things, yes and no. Um, to go back, we had a, a strong team culture at South Carolina, so I got to experience mm-hmm. that. Um, we did have a team culture while I was here as an assistant. But you have to, you have to, things have to change though. It's not something that you can keep going indefinitely. People who believe that it is not true. Simply because the culture gets established from the top. Are you playing that music? That's not me. That's not me. That's not coming. Yeah, I can hear a little bit of it. It's no, it's all, it might be somewhere outside your place. Cause it's, it's not coming strange. from me. It's not coming okay, from was, me. Okay. It was very distracted and very strange. Yeah. <laughs> um, I know you could cut that. So, um, <laughs> co- well, you don't have to. It doesn't matter. It's genuine. Culture, I'll probably leave it in. Honestly. Yeah, I always leave that stuff in too. I'm like, whatever. We're people. Yeah. So the team culture does come from the top. It comes from the head coach. It comes from the staff. Is 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 not magic, and it's hard to carry over a culture that's established by someone else because there are facets of that person in that culture. So, like our former, our previous head coach, he was real. Like you know, 
When you're up, you're up, you're down. When you're up against Cornell track, you're upside down. Boogity boo, boogity boo, boogity boogity woo woo woo. You know, that's not me. <laughs> I, I can't fake that. That's not me. And so I can't continue a culture based off of that type of energy. I'm like, yo, ABC, let's show up, let's perform, let's win, take care of business. Like I'm straight, straight to the point. Mm-hmm. And that's my personality. Yeah. And so I can't build a culture off of this. It has to be more like this rah rah. Yeah. For now, that's what the captains are for. You know, that's what, you know, you may have assistant coaches who that's their personality and they they could do that. For me, when I'm talking, it's about hey, this is what we're here to do. ABC, y'all are prepared. We've been working for this. Let's show them what we got. That's that's me. So um any position you get, like it, you know, you're coaching, you know, you have a team, you have to kind of build that culture off of who you are and then what you really value or else it's going to be hard to hold together. So we did have a culture. And so I understood the importance of a culture. So yes, absolutely good that we had a culture already established, but there were a period of some years where there there was some changing that needed to happen because that's just, that's always going to happen when there's change. Yeah. And then specifically more towards Cornell, you got your season had just kind of wrapped up for the year. What, uh, what was your expectations for you guys? Did you meet those expectations as a, what would you give your review for your squad this year? Uh, man, a plus plus plus, because we didn't have a season. Yeah. <laughs> We'd have a season. These kids endured a lot. They, you know, they trained, they trained whenever we were allowed to train. Yeah. Um, when, when we were finally allowed one competition we had two women advance to the NC, you know, NCAA regionals and NCAAs essentially, yeah. and you know, personal bests, some great performances. So when given the opportunity, I think our kids show that they're like very competitive, and I'm looking forward to next year when we have a, a real season and we get to compete, so that uh, folks can see what we've been in the lab. You know, we've been in the kitchen cooking up because we have some very talented folks on our squad for sure. Um, but it's, it, it was tough this year. Um, I don't keep it a secret. I, I'm not a fan of the Ivy League's decisions when it came to how things were handled um, at the end. I think I, I do commend the Ivy League for making for being the first ones to kind of shut things down and take everything seriously. I think that was wise. But then towards the end, I just, you know, the Ivy League not competing yeah. and taking that away from the kids while, you know, 300 plus programs are competing. I have an issue with that. I, I, I push back on that a little. Um, yeah. How difficult was it? Cause that's very, that's two, cause it's two seasons now that were really kind of taken away. Cause it was pretty much the latter half of last year too. Yeah. Our last meet was indoor, <laughs> indoor conference. Yeah, exactly. So you didn't have outdoor. two years of outdoors and then another year of indoor. Yeah. So I can't, I can't say that. I can't justify that. Mm-hmm. I, I don't and approve. How is for you guys? So for, for the outdoor season, do they get now two years of the COVID eligibility? How is that? Do you even know how that works? Or no? Yeah. Yeah. They'll get a bunch, except for the ones who made it to nationals. Everyone else will still have their eligibility. I'm pretty okay. sure. Okay, At yeah. least they'll be able to come back, which is good. Yeah. Well, not to the Ivy league. Cause we yeah. don't have fifth years. So mm-hmm. a couple, a couple issues that need to be addressed. <laughs> and then uh, a couple of things before we wrap up, I know, mm-hmm. Uh, there's been a lot of mixed reviews 
about okay. the Olympics and how the IOC is still pushing very hard to have it in Japan. And then there's a lot of backlash in certain countries, Japan, especially trying to potentially postpone it again. What, what is the mentality of you as a coach representing a national team, as well as maybe the athletes, what is your overall perspective on what, how this has transpired? I know it was post can't postponed last year. And then now trying to potentially have it postponed again. I, I think it's a little bit too late at this point to try and postpone, but. I do not think they should postpone it. I think they should let the athletes compete. I don't believe that they're going to allow spectators or I don't think they probably should, mm-hmm. but I do think that they should let the athletes come and represent their countries and compete and try to have as close to an Olympic experience as they can, because they deserve it and they've worked hard for it. And it's already been delayed. It's very hard you know, if you were an athlete, it's, it's some cases where an athlete, the year going to the Olympics was working on specific things. And then that Olympic year, they were ready. And they, they may have been racing this year. They may have gotten hurt. And they may have lost that opportunity. It's like, man, some folks really missed out and were training their whole lives for this. And there are folks right now who are running very, very fast and who are ready right now to get their Olympic medal. Yeah. To postpone it again, I think, I think you need to let those folks go run. They're already competing. They're ready. For, I mean, and I guess Olympics is more than this track. When I think of Olympics, I'm going to be honest. I think of track, uh, but I, and I don't think of whatever other sports they're ping pong or whatever. I don't know. Um, everyone, everyone watches track at the Olympics. So um, I just, I, I personally think they should allow folks to compete. Am I enthusiastic about going to Tokyo right now? I would love to visit Tokyo. Um, Am I enthusiastic about traveling over there and going there right now? No, mm-hmm. um, I am vaccinated, so I'm sure I'll be safe, but I just feel like things are going to be extremely restrictive and mm-hmm. it's not going to be the experience that I've had at other Olympics. And so I, you know, I'm not enthusiastic about it, but I do want the, the athletes to have the opportunity to compete and perform their best. And I'll facilitate that in any way that I can to support the athletes. So I'll just have to suck it up if I have to, you know. Yeah. And if most likely if fans aren't in attendance, how how much of the atmosphere actually is taken away in your in your perception? All of it? (laughs) Well, no, no. The atmosphere. Yes. But, you know, when you're those those folks are going to still have energy, the athletes themselves, because you're still competing on that stage. You still you're still going to feel it. But. Uh, it makes a huge difference when you have, you know, 100,000 people cheering and roaring and clapping in the stands. That's, that's, that's electric. So um, it would be disappointing if it couldn't happen. But I just don't know what they're going to do. <laughs> I wish them all the best in figuring it out. I'm glad I don't have to plan the logistics on this one. For sure. And then lastly, I'm going to wrap up. You actually have your own podcast. It's called The yes. Home Stretch. Yes. You've been, uh, I think you have what, 15 plus episodes at the moment around there? 21 or 22. Yeah. 21, 22 episodes. Can you just describe what led to you to actually start your own podcast that features mostly track and field athletes and their stories? Yes. So, you know, I've been coaching for at Cornell for eight and a half years now, coach. So maybe to 10 years plus college coaching. And, you know, a lot of people don't understand what we do. I look at practice as being the smallest the most fun but probably the smallest part about what I have to do especially Mm -hmm. as a head coach and a big part to me personally is preparing the young men and women that we get who are high schoolers and making sure that they're ready 
for the real world when they graduate in four years, you know, really ready to be successful in all, in all ways, decision-making, just all of that. So um, we want them to run fast, but it's a lot more than just that. We're, we're an Ivy. It's not just about sports for us. Mm-hmm. It's the complete package. Um, you know, and so I, I kind of take pride in that, you know, that's a, a big piece of it for me. Um, yeah. I want to win. Yeah. I want folks to run fast, but, but that's a big piece of it for me. Um, facilitating that, that growth and that development. We get to see it. Um, I got a little off topic. I was thinking about that. Yeah, but, go uh, ahead. Um, ask me that again. The, the home stretch, if you want. To- yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was. I got completely sidelined. Uh, so the reason. So the re- So because of that piece, um, I just I noticed that when I would meet regular people and I would do my track coach thing because I'm stuck in coach mode. Mm-hmm. You know, I would. Uh, I would. I would you know, just start coaching them in regular life stuff though. Like they were like, Oh, I'm worried about this job. I'm like, Hey, look, if you want to get this job, you have to do a, B and C. And then people be like, Oh, wow. Thanks. You know? And you know, I'll meet someone and be like, Oh, this is hard. I'm like, it's going to be hard. You can still succeed. You got an A, B and C. And they're like, and I had someone come up to me and say that the words that I told them, um, changed their life, you know, like it, it helped them. And I was like, Oh, wow. So actually this is more than this track. I can actually do this and help people in a regular everyday life and I thought about I was like I'd like to do a podcast I have access to all of these uh Olympians and medalists and all these super you know successful athletes um and I know how hard it is to do that and I see people struggling in the world every day not really having a path and maybe not understanding that when it's hard you're kind of on the right track sometime like it gets harder and harder and harder before you kind of break through and a lot of times we quit before we get to that point and so the purpose of the podcast is for um, these people to tell their stories, you know, tell their stories, how they got into the sport, how they got their medals, how, what they had to overcome. And when you listen to it, you kind of start hearing a pattern. It's like, I had a broken leg. Everyone told me I would never run again. And I, you know, I said, no, today I'm going to do this and I'm going to change this and I'm going to win. And then you're like, oh, and then they win. So it's like, wow, there's a pattern. And I start just noticing that. And I figure. It'd be beneficial for everyone to hear that, not just people who are in sports, but people who just, you know, are looking for some motivation or looking for a way to find success or to achieve their goals that who, that who don't have acts, who don't get coached, you know, who are in this world where we're always competing and coaching and motivating. And I figure regular people needed to hear a little bit of that. So the podcast, the whole purpose of the podcast is for these people to tell their stories so that everyone can hear it and understand what it takes to win and be successful and you know, to get that job, to get that promotion, whatever it is you're trying to do. Um, so that's really the purpose of it. And the mental <laughs> mindset of, of those stories are very relatable in real life. It's not just yeah. a, it's not just sports only. Like you can take no all those applications and apply them to yourself and be able to take that next step as long as you're willing to put in the work and have that drive. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's the whole point. Uh, and so I'm just trying to access these track athletes and I want to give them a chance to tell their stories. And also, I think it's, it's shedding light on some other issues in track and field, which is mm-hmm. interesting. You know, when, when people are really opening up about their experiences, you're like, mm, there's some stuff that's going on that needs to be maybe some light shed on some issues. So if, my, so if the home stretch can be a platform that serves as a, catal- as a catalyst for change, then so be it. You know, just some of these athletes, when you hear their stories about, you know, the comp- shoe companies or 
like Chelsea Hammond. She still doesn't have her medal yet. Send her her medal. Whoever got, you know, a girl who got busted sends Chelsea her medal, you know? Yeah. <laughs> should be that it shouldn't be that difficult yeah why is she waiting here she you know she deserves a medal let her get it absolutely and then i i know this is uh you're having an event later today for your seniors is there yep. a message that you want to send out to them that right here on this podcast hmm to the seniors message i mean they've been hearing me in zoom meetings all year long seniors uh congratulations on graduating making it out of cornell very tough school. I'm not sure people really understand how hard Cornell is and just, just period. And the fact that, you know, you all are successful graduating and have been successful college division one athletes as well. Um, it's a testament to how talented you are. And I think, you know, you guys, all of you are prepared to take the world by storm. So I wish you all the best and looking forward to seeing what you all accomplish. Perfect. And then the last thing, do you want to say anything to the healthcare workers that are putting their lives on the line at the front lines yes that's actually a great that's great um because there's not enough appreciation shown for the folks who are keeping everything going um you know healthcare workers but but also the people who keep the lights on keep the gears turning we would you know we're able to live in comfort due to the hard work of a lot of people who go unrecognized unacknowledged um you know on my way to becoming a head coach i've had to work some pretty some pretty terrible jobs in my day. And, uh, and I understand, you, you know, you go without any praise or any acknowledgement or thanks. So um, shout out to all the folks who are keeping the gears turning, the healthcare workers who are putting themselves um, at risk for our own safety and well-being. We appreciate you all. Um, and hopefully we're coming to the end of this, this uh, pandemic and things go back to normal. Um, and hopefully not normal for some of these folks. So hopefully some of these folks can get some acknowledgement for what they've done and, and, you know, maybe get treated a little better. Absolutely. Adrian, I want to thank you so much. This was probably one of my personal favorite interviews to ever conduct. So <laughs> thanks, thanks and, for having me. <laughs> uh, yeah. Thank you so much. Is there anything that you want to say about to, where to catch your podcast, where to catch yourself with any of your motivational stuff? Sure. Yeah. I'm just dabbling my toe into the motivational speaking world because it's all to me is all the same as long as I can help someone achieve their goals I'm good whether that's running fast or whatever becoming whoever they want to be I, I you know I'm fulfilled by that so you can catch me on YouTube um I'm saying my channel it might be Adrian Durant or just type in the home stretch with Adrian Durant you'll definitely find me there um the podcast is also on iTunes um the home stretch with Adrian Durant uh, you find me on Instagram, AKD Coach. I'm starting to do more live streams and some motivational stuff on there. Um, so check me out there. I'm on Twitter, but I don't use Twitter. So catch me on Instagram. It's a little better. <laughs> I can't do it all, Twitter, and uh, that's too much. Yeah. I, I, can't, I can't disagree with you on that one. Yeah. It's one oh, of the other. and if you're looking for life coaching or some kind of motivational speaking, you know, for a group, AdrianDurant.com, and you can uh, contact me there. All right, you heard it. Go check out all of Adrian's <laughs> motivational as well as his home stretch podcast. Or if not, you'll be able to maybe catch him in Tokyo if you're checking out maybe. on screen if these Olympics end up taking place. Adrian, thank you again so much for your time. I greatly appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Blaine. I appreciate it. This was fun. <laughs> Absolutely. So this was your special edition of the Final Whistle Sports Podcast. We got more coming out in these next couple of days. So stay tuned. Have a good day, everybody. <laughs>